This episode of Print Run. My name is Eric Hain, and with me, as always, is Laura Zatz. Say hello, Laura. Hello, everyone. So, um, we survived the polar vortex, Barely. I guess, is step one of all this. Uh, <laughs> what did you do during that? Well, I had a couple of weeks before gotten successfully, like, Facebook added to uh-huh. on for this, this Norwegian-made onesie. <laughs> Just in case you want one, it's called uh, One Piece. I would never buy something made by Norwegians. <laughs> As a Swede. That's right. um, yeah, so I had just gotten my onesie like the day before it got super, super, super cold. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, I had not gone grocery shopping, but I had the week before hosted a poker game. So I still had 150 Totino's pizza rolls in yes. my freezer. Excellent. And a thing at Cheetos. I remember I was going to come over for that. We were supposed to record. Yeah. In the big draw for like getting in my car in sub-zero temperatures was, was the, the pizza, pizza rolls. rolls but then it the, was too cold the temperatures hit what on the day we were supposed to like the wind chill put it at like negative 50 55 right? yeah negative yeah. 55 and which sounds made up but that really was the number yeah um and it was it was bad out there man i don't know i was like did you go outside at yeah, all i went outside oh i, had I to, like, absolutely take, did not i had to like take the garbage out i had to you know scrape the cars a little bit it was a whole situation we opened the door to let moose out moose is our dog the podcast dog um and when our because we have a humidifier in our house mm-hmm. um and when the humid air met the dry air from outside Everything it was like a cloud, the shape of the the door. Yeah. When I opened it up, it was just an instant cloud. Um, so that was super fun. But yeah, basically I just like hung out with Moose and you know, that's 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 what I did. Yeah, no, we had to like do a bunch of dumb house stuff. We had to like change the furnace filter and do all these things I'd like never done before. Oh for yeah. Anything. So like yeah, it was a whole situation, but we survived. Uh, it was very cold for a few days before we got that furnace fixed. Oof. But anyway, we're back. Um, there's book news galore, I guess. We're going to focus on a couple of those stories today. Uh, before we get into all of the fun for the afternoon, how about we get the basic rundown? Yeah, so welcome to Print Run. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have, in addition to our weekly special, or our weekly special but free to the public episodes, we have paid special episodes that are focused on writing craft. Mm -hmm. So we always have a query show, a first pages show, and then a kind of wild card. Sometimes we play publishing Call of Cthulhu. Sometimes we do Q&A. Sometimes we do like a more like a book clubby type critique. Um, So you should subscribe. We're on Patreon. (laughs) Look under Print Run. Um, And if you have any queries or first pages that you want us to critique or any questions, either for Taloon It May Concern or a normal Q&A, send them to us. We're at printrunpodcast at gmail.com. So before we get into the things we are actually going to talk about on this week's episode, there was one thing that came up um, if you're anywhere near the contemporary book scene on any sort of regular basis online or even if you just read articles or whatever it is, um, you probably saw a bunch of stuff and takes and countertakes and general fervor around what happened with um, the book Blood Air, 
um, which was the YA fantasy, which was a yeah. YA fantasy that was that was recently, I guess, pulled. Is that how we would? What yeah, we would call it was it? it was pulled from publication yeah. and so, at request of the author. Sure, and so we're not going to talk about that story. And the reason <laughs> the reason I want to point that out, as opposed to it simply being one of the any number of other infinite things that we are theoretically not going to talk about on this particular show it's just because a lot of people were asking us to online we got a lot of tweets that were like can't wait for your take on this can't wait to hear what you guys think about this situation all that kind of stuff and you know we were thinking about it and trying to figure out how we would you know because it it does in a lot of ways it kind of felt like a print run topic you know it's kind of a it's It's a lot of drama yeah it's a lot of drama it kind of cut across some really worthwhile issues across publishing there's a lot of reasons why i so i get why people wanted us to talk about it but it also, you know, there's a certain times in based on timing or based on subject matter where uh, Laura and I are not the best audience or not the best vehicle for a take on a given thing. <laughs> you know, especially when you, you're getting into, you know, issues like colorism and things that we're just simply not the people you, sh- you should want to hear from on this. And especially when there are plenty of other experts in the book world and outside the book world who are maybe talking about the issue in a way far more personally and with more expertise than we ever could. And so probably it's our job in a situation like that to simply point you toward them. Um, It also became a situation where, um, and this is a very meta take, I guess, on the situation, but um, it sort of hit a point where it felt like the YA community discussed it and dealt with it in a way that seemed very kind of healthy and good and the and then, only people still exactly, talking about yeah. it were the bad actors right, and exactly the trolls. it actually yeah. we reached a point where the book community had actually done the necessary work on all fronts you had you had you know some you know some thoughtful apologies all that kind of stuff and like the only people who were still trying to make noise about it were bad people people looking in people trying to ridicule the community people trying to do things and so it's like at some point something just has to be has to let lie and adding more noise to it is simply not useful and so that's what we're going to do we're simply going to let it drop because we've tweeted a lot of really we've retweeted a lot of really good articles and threads about yeah. this particular topic yeah. so there you go their takes are better than ours yeah just there <laughs> you know we're we are not a one size fits all um podcast and so we'll leave it to others to discuss that so but- but something we do want to talk about today. <laughs> yeah, all sorts of other crazy shit. Um, but the first thing that we wanted to kind of get into today, and this was spurned by, you know, we're kind of doing what I always like when we do, which is kind of combine and group certain stories that kind of feel like they exist together in our minds, right? And the first set of things relates to um, this piece of book news that came out um I guess late January, it came out January 24th was the date of the Times article. Again, we've been off for two weeks because we were stuck indoors. Uh, it was very cold. Uh, it was, I want, actually, you know what, hold on a second. <laughs> I want. I don't think people are like picturing, they're like, oh, how cold could it have been? Let me tell you something, dear listener. It was free like freezing actually no it was actually about 80 degrees less than freezing yeah it's it was 100 points. degrees warmer in my house than it was oh my outside yeah, and exactly. my house was set at a completely reasonable temperature it's of like, 63 and a half degrees yeah it, anyway it was a genuine hellscape out here and so anyway that is a long way of saying that we are about a week late to this article <laughs> But we are here now, um, and so it, basically we got news that Wattpad, which is a storytelling app, we even talked about it once. They had that that's kind of scrolling technology, you know, that we looked at that one time. They are 
they're launching a publishing division. They're doing the whole thing. They're kind of known for being a, um, you know, they're kind of a tech company. It's they're a, an app. Yeah, They've got it's some a venture serial, capital. Yeah. yeah, it's a serial. Um, it's a platform for people to write serials. So the idea is that. Upload fi- fan fiction and so yeah, forth. Yeah, fan fiction, serials, et cetera. Um, and people do chapter by chapter by chapter. And there's a lot of community engagement. There's a lot of. Um, there's a lot of famous books that have come out of that, just mm-hmm. as there's a lot of famous books that have come out of other ways. Uh, but what's really interesting about Wattpad using or starting a publishing company is that they're using what it's calling story DNA machine learning technology. Okay, yeah. So let's re- <laughs> let me read that bit verbatim out of this. Out of it's this so article crazy, you guys. It's it's worth kind of getting their exact language in the in the article. The company will use what it calls story DNA machine learning technology to take, and this is in quotes, the guesswork out of the publishing equation, said Alan Lau, the company's chief executive and co-founder. Whereas traditional publishing is based on individual editors' tastes, Wattpad's technology will scan and analyze the hundreds of millions of stories on the app to find themes or elements that might determine a story's commercial success, Lau said. Wattpad will combine this with data-driven approach with human editor's critical eye. And then the next little bit here. We're able to take the opinions of 70 million users and what they are reading and what's resonating with them as a starting point, said Ashley Gardner, who will head the publishing division. Man. Um, So (laughs) it's weird to even know how to kind of express how I feel about that up front. I think probably the best way before we kind of get into our individual thoughts on the issue is to pair it with where this is sitting in relation to the other thing that I wanted to talk about with this story, which is that uh, Spiegel and Grau is closing. Um, it's a you know very big, famous imprint. They were, they were Ta-Nehisi Coates' um, publisher, for instance, uh, for Between the World and Me. It's sort of a very, very good literary a lot of non under penguin random house yeah it's always a kind of a, i think originally a random house i know that's penguin random house, but like um sort of one of those classic random yeah. house imprints in a way that i think um you know they, and they did really good work it was a publisher that um you know you knew to be you know to have great taste and to, to be, be professional to be worthwhile you saw that you know, it was one of those things where you saw the name on the spine and you felt at least that the book had some weight to it you know and I just look at these stories and I see that again. And like, what, it was a few weeks ago, maybe a month now at this point, that Tin House closed. Mm-hmm. And you see, you know, layoffs across the media landscape even more. And then you see something like this. And I realize it's not a direct response, but people trying to then techify yeah. publishing. They trying to make it something that, you know, usually through, you know, some sort of like influx of venture capital. There's always then, somebody from the tech world yeah, who thinks that yeah. they can do what we do better than what how we do it. Well, and that's and that's the thing is, you know, a point that we you know we've kind of tried to make, and I feel like it's a very qualitative point, and it's one that you know anyone involved in this Wattpad venture would certainly disagree with because they would point to their user data, they would point to numbers, they would point to the precision with which they're able to observe patterns and all these things, and but it just. I, every time I see these companies or these imprints close or reshuffle, and obviously, like most of you know, obviously the authors who are with Spiegel and Grau are going to go elsewhere, particularly to One World, which is another good imprint at at PRH. But like, 
you can't keep replacing these structures. You can't just keep reshuffling these publishers. And like when I see this kind of tech stuff, it makes me think that far too many people who are in the book world or trying to enter the book world view like publishing houses and companies and what they do as simply manufacturing a product. Mm-hmm. And it's just simply that simply just isn't what it is. You know, like you can't replace, you know, editorial rapport in on a staff, you know, and you'll hear magazine people talk about this a lot too when they talk about, you know, reshuffling newsrooms and things like that, right? You can't replace, you know, in-house chemistry. You can't replace, you know, really having someone who, you know, an editor who knows the agents and knows the authors and just knows you know, has deep institutional knowledge or really or kind of... Or grassroots, a, commu- like, yeah, and, community built, yeah. Or even just amongst themselves, right? Like, continuity is a key feature, I think, of good publishing. Mm. You know, it's places that really take the time to invest in their lists, in their authors, in their people, you know, in the you know in their editors and their sales team. It's people who have a relationship and are able to kind of build something that holds cultural cachet over time. You know, like, if you study how... You know, places like FSG, you know, kind of become to be what they are. One of the key things is that you had people who really invested a lot of, you know, time and creative work over long periods of time and kind of built something that wasn't very easily quantifiable, Mm -hmm. you know, and was built on something that wasn't purely described in terms of metrics. And I just see this Wattpad stuff and I see a line like, for instance, you know, we're going to, you know, this technology, here's what it's going to do. It's going to take the guesswork out of the pub, <laughs> out of the publishing equation. It's going to mean you don't have to guess. And I just look at that and I say, maybe. But guessing is the best part. Well, guessing, I mean, in some sort of like quaint, you know, postcard way. Yeah, guessing is the best part. Well, but it's also, the, I think, the most artistically meaningful part. Yeah, like, well, I that's think, why it's the best yeah, part. I think that so much of this stuff and you know you get sort of a hand wave toward, you know, at the very end of this process toward like having a human editorial eye. But like. These people clearly, at least to me, and again, like maybe I'm taking a too hard line of a stance to it and I'm happy to be corrected, but like it's very clear that some of these things just simply don't value like what an editor actually does in-house, you know? And like, you know, clearly they've identified individual editor taste as a problem and they've identified, um, you know, just basically the human element as the problem and at, toward the end, you know, they do sort of latch on, they do co-opt the language of grassroots human stuff where they start to say, well, the problem is representation, right? And it's because all the editors are kind of the same and all this. And it's like, yes, that's true. But that isn't necessarily a reason to do away with the concept, if that makes sense. I, so for, for listeners who aren't deeply embedded in the structure of publishing companies, I want to talk a little bit about what eliminating Spiegel and Grau is a symptom of, um, particularly Penguin Random House. Um, and since their acquisition with Crown and their reshuffling, like what they're doing is they're going from having these two behemoths that are operating independently Mm -hmm. and have these little like pockets of special imprints that work autonomously. Um, So like, for example, Macmillan, like St. Martin's Press, a a series of imprints within Macmillan works Mm -hmm. autonomously. Mm -hmm. Okay. Like what, they're doing is they're getting rid of all of those pockets and instead they're siloing their process. So they're moving everybody into the same place. Um, they're getting rid of those imprints that have that 
that cachet and that kind of outside, you know, we do what we want sort of status so that then they can create these houses, right? Mm -hmm. And these houses mean that there are going to be fewer imprints. It means that agents are going to have fewer places and fewer people to submit projects to. Um, And when you draw the line from that, it means, you know, fewer people of color will be hired because there's fewer chances. What it also means is that um, a lot of really worthwhile books that would have sold to really amazing editors aren't going to be given the leeway because you have to deal with this entire like siloed institutional structure. You're building a corporate monolith where you used to have book publishers. And so one thing that Wattpad, I I mean, I truly believe, Eric, that Wattpad is going to fail. <laughs> do you? So, um, I, guess I do. Define failure, though, because I, as, They're much, not as down make as any I money. am, okay, I don't that's, think, wow, I don't that's think, okay. I do not think that they are going to make enough money to make this worth it, because the thing about the herd mentality, which is what they're banking on, and which, like, as a tech company, Wattpad has been really successful at is from the herd mentality, they're saying, okay, we know what's popular, okay? Mm-hmm. We know what's good. But what happens is that a lot of that popular, like, herd mentality comes from just kind of this beautiful, serendipitous confluence of individual editorial choices. Yeah. So, like, for example, um, we can look at the hate you give right Mm -hmm. the hate you give is a phenomenon it absolutely deserves to be a phenomenon it just broke its 100th week on the new york times bestseller list Mm -hmm. most of it being in spot number one yeah okay um the hate you give is just the book that broke out but we had dear martin that had a deal long before Mm -hmm. the hate you give it just by virtue of production came out later and you know, we have Long Way Down. We have all of these other projects that were acquired at the same time and thus came out at this came out at the same time. Like it's not just that one book by itself got really big. Mm. It it like it's not just by itself. People that you know, and this New York Times article, like from the statement by the the people at Wattpad, they talk about how Fifty Shades of Grey wouldn't have been this big if it hadn't had that community support. Sure. And I think what they're missing is the success of Fifty Shades of Grey didn't happen when it was picked up by traditional publishing. It had already sold hundreds of thousands of copies and then it it kind of it worked up that way. Mm. And the problem is, is that then everybody else tried to scramble and say, oh, that's really hot right now. Let me publish that. And then they missed it. Like you can't you can't use a computer algorithm to anticipate what people are interested in because by the time they're interested in it you either have it to sell or you don't and if you're looking to see what they want and then producing something based on it it's not going to work it does sort of remind that's i think a really good point and it does sort of remind me of my least favorite and i think we've talked about this maybe even recently my least favorite piece of editor acquisitions logic which is i'm not sure how we're going to break this out oh yeah we've talked about which that is a little bit like you're going to break it out because you're the one who tells people what to read. Like people read, like it's circular, right? Like people read what from places they trust and then that's how a taste develops. And then like 
there's a certain basically my point is like there's a certain amount of say over who's reading what that publishers have that in moments of acquisition they often pretend they don't have and this is sort of an example of kind of throwing your hands up entirely and saying we're going to leave our acquisitions decisions entirely up to current consumer tastes mm-hmm. right with no and this is where you know you, I think that whether or not they failed monetarily or not you are going to get into some trouble without um, you know, in cultivating a really kind of a forward-thinking scene because you do need someone who can kind of see trends and do all the things that an editor does before any consumer gets involved, you know? And I guess, like, I just look at this stuff, and obviously, you know, there's a lot of different kinds of book publishing out there, and I end up always end up kind of thinking about the more literary adult, you know, end of things and, you know, like the real, like, I don't know, American book, you know, art scene, you know, and I just, I look at that and I think you're never, ever, ever going to crowdsource, you do create an art scene based on crowdsourced opinion. You can't. You can't. You're always going to be doing that by empowering people who know what they're doing and curatorial roles. I will always believe that. And that might even be somewhat of a regressive opinion, but like the idea that it's bad that individual editors are doing the acquiring of books is... I think probably an idea that is gaining a little bit of steam, and it's one that I think that I deeply disagree with. I think it's good that that happens. The problem is that we don't have enough we don't have enough diversity in those roles. But like, I think that editor is a very skilled position. It's a position of in some in some way agent is too. But you know we're sort of these weird middlemen in this equation. But like, I guess I just balk at this stuff a little bit, and as a means of producing or innovating, you know, publishing. And, like, it's, you, know, you look at layoff after layoff. I mean, what, did we see 500-some jobs get lost o- across a few different magazines, you know, over the last couple of weeks? And the feeling that I always end up with is that you're never, ever, ever going to tech innovate your way into creating a landscape that actually, like, values artistic talent. <laughs> like, you can't. Like right now we've got this thing where it's like if we can just like innovate our way into better publishing, if we can just, you know, make, you know, create some algorithm or create some app that's going to, you know, revolutionize the way we publish, somehow that is going to, you know, turn this industry around. And to me, all of that comes within the context that's well beneath this idea that like publishing and most major you know industry doesn't really value the people doing the work you know like it's sort of this like brutal efficiency model that is mostly just designed to you know compress and you know consolidate at every possible turn and we're seeing it in publishing now we're definitely seeing it in journalism and it's like there's no and I mean maybe it connects to this maybe it doesn't but I'm just going to say it now and you're going to hear me say it again because next week something else is going to happen along this trend but you're never going to tech innovate your way into getting our, you know, the industry to adequately value, you know, writers and artists in a way that's actually going to produce the scene you're looking for. It's never going to happen. You have to do that with, you know, protecting, you know, laborers and people. And and that's not, not to say that publishing can't and shouldn't use technology no, because no, 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 it not absolutely should, not a, <laughs> just oh, no, not no, yeah. in the way that people are thinking about it. Totally. I'm just, but like when we see like, you know, the the tech, there's no fundamental tech fix to publishing there's tech uses i mean there's stuff that's going to come in that can help these processes but like the underlying foundation is one of that we're totally fine you know mm-hmm. re- you know taking some of the great 
American, you know, publishing imprints and just, oh, yeah, no, we'll just reshuffle them. We'll just put these people over here because it makes more business sense. Or we'll just shut this down and redo the structure because that makes more sense. I am telling you that you are losing something in that reshuffling that is not easily regained and it is going to we aren't able to grapple with that yet but we will be and that's going to be it's going to be very sad when we realize what we've lost and some of the best relationships that people talk about the most important individual relationships one-on-one in the 20th century were between a writer and an editor and the thing about an editor is that they are an individual they're the first they're the first test case for that grassroots marketing that becomes so important for a book's critical success. And they're the ones like if, so what an editor does is they fall in love with a book, they go to the rest of their editorial team, get them to fall in love with the book. Then the editorial team goes and has all of the other parts of the publishing machine fall in love with that book. And then it's, you know, and then it's the sales and marketing people's job to make booksellers fall in love with the book. And it's just kind of like, if you don't have that first person fighting for that book and really justifying it, then what you're doing is you're creating a product that hasn't been market tested. Yeah. Quite honestly, yeah. like that's what a huge part of the publishing process is, is it's market testing. Because like most of the time you're selling a book to people who fucking love reading mm-hmm. and guess who works in publishing. You know what I mean? Yeah. And and so like, again, you know, we, we keep coming back to this and there are representation and diversity problems, particularly within big houses. But what what can't be discounted from just an individual standpoint is the the collaboration in the innovation. And that's when something really, really special happens. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm you know, I'm worried, you know, everybody has those fake like I programmed a robot after watching 30 episodes of Frasier to, <laughs> to write this thing. And like, yeah. I'm worried yeah. that that is what people think that readers want. Yeah. And it's not, you know, like we've learned in the television landscape in the film landscape in the book landscape time and time and time again that your audience is smarter than you think it is. And good luck making this process not art. Yeah. You know, like it's all good it's, luck. It's like this constant <laughs> thing where it's like we can just simulate it and simulate it and simulate it. But eventually you're just never going to end up with the same thing. And I just look at like and again, I so it's weird because I see, well, is Wattpad. Should I be like, should I be mad at Wattpad? No, probably not. This is a probably a perfectly good, benign piece of technology that's going to do its little thing. And pro- but like, you know, you, you can tell that that's not what they think it is. They think, especially at the end here, this article, it says, you know, Wattpad Books is part of the company's master plan, in quotes, to revolutionize the publishing and media industries. And I would just love to see, I'll, like, when we check in on that plan in a few years, um, I'll give you, you know, we can bet any sum you want. I'll, <laughs> I'll buy you dinner if. It, that doesn't somehow mean like laying more people off, like yeah. paying people, paying creators less, like doing all the things that every other tech company yeah. does. Anytime they're ready to revolutionize anything, which yeah. mostly just means crushing labor and like editors it, as contractors <laughs> with no exactly. health. And, yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, like what does it mean if we bring in a contract that's editor? What that's what it means. And yeah. so that's what it always means. And that's why even when something that would otherwise probably be kind of cool, like this sort of tech. But I'm gonna just gonna reserve the right to be the cranky grandpa about it, <laughs> and really, and just like with a little bit of foresight, say that maybe 
this isn't where we're trying to get. So I would like to take over the role of cranky grandpa now Mm -hmm. and transition us into my favorite new print run segment. Yes. What's going on down there? (laughs) This segment particularly refers to um, Australia and sometimes New Zealand, but mostly Australia and the wacky publishing shit they get down to. Yeah, we've become the book world's most prominent anti-Australia podcast. Uh, (laughs) We've really staked out an enemy. In this show, uh, <laughs> we are not anti-Australia, but they do produce good news bits. Uh, they so sure what do, we, do. What do we got this time? So this one, um, it's from just a week or two ago. Mm-hmm. There was on an Australian highway or freeway, I think they call it, uh, a driver was caught reading at a hundred kilometers <laughs> an hour. Hell yes. Like just Incredibly there's like this good. picture, right? Yeah. Or, you know, and it's this it's this man who was driving and just like had his head down and was reading a book. Um, And it was during rush hour. It was like right after five o'clock. And so my question to you, Eric, is emulating the Aussies. Uh What book would make you read while you're driving 100 kilometers an hour? Like, so what would the ideal project be for just getting in my car and not refusing to stare at the road? Yes. Oof, man, that's a good question. I feel like you'd want to read something kind of like thrillery, you know? Like, yeah. I feel like you'd really want to kind of get going. Something like, with a chase. Yeah, like I feel like this is, you know, I'm sure there's like a James Patterson book yeah. called like Driving While Reading in Australia or something. Like, it's probably like a very specific. <laughs> there will be next week. That's <laughs> yeah, what comes out next there's week. There's already a bookshot coming out about this. Um, yeah, but, I mean, and this is like 62 miles per hour right like this is this is faster than what the speed limit is on our biggest highway in the twin cities i would prefer this man to be driving near me than anyone driving in the twin cities though i would tell you that book or not like everyone especially in the winter yeah yeah it's no good Um, i i think that like i'm kind of torn between like do i want to read a heist book or like mm-hmm. something with like a lot of sex scenes or do I want to yeah. read like because you're getting pulled over <laughs> yeah or do so I you've we... got to look cool when yeah you're, like, or yeah. do I want to read like something completely insufferable yeah. like do, do I want to read uh, Infinite Jest I was going to say it's a great time to break out Infinite Jest <laughs> but the like, good thing about that is if you have to like look down for a second and look up and you keep losing your yeah. place it doesn't matter yeah. because it's it's an unreadable book yeah, anyhow that book is typeset at like have you ever have you ever like popped that thing open? The yes, it gives me a tiny. headache. Yeah, it's very small. It's very, um, oh man. Um, so the answer to what's going on down there is unsafe driving, and who else knows? If you have a book where immediately you're like, absolutely, I would drive sixty two miles an hour with that. Um, I would like to know what that is. We'll call it your car wreck book, folks. Um, <laughs> we're going to start a movement. It's called Reading While Driving. We'll see how long it takes for like the Department of Transportation to sue yell us at or us. something. Yeah. At least someone would pay attention to us. That can't get. I can't get the gas station to tweet back at me still. So maybe, are you still? Maybe well, you know we they start, changed their name. They, they went did. from Super America to Speedway. I know they did. See, Do they still have Super folks, Moms? Folks, it's another example of like corporate consolidation ruining the publishing landscape because now the coffee has changed hands. Um, does it taste the same? It is. It does taste the same, Laura. These crappy machines I used to get my mocha out of there has not been altered. Um, well, thankfully. that's good. <laughs> Just the signs outside. Yeah. Although, honestly, 
it bothers me more than I care to admit, except I'm admitting it publicly right mm. now. How much had that they changed it from Super America to Subway? Yeah, no, it's it's or um, Speedway, it's, Speedway. Yeah, Speedway. What, that's some, dumb. Yeah, no, it's really bad, and I'm angry. Now, about it, now but. I've changed my my uh, <laughs> my gas station. Now I go to the Come and Go. Oh yeah, is that better or worse than the Pump and Munch? Because that's also a gas station. Oh no no no! Just kidding. Come and Goes were where I went in Iowa. Now no, I go to Pump you and Munch pump on and the way munch. to the office. Yeah, yeah yeah yeah, I go to the Pump excellent. and Munch on Energy Park Drive. Yeah, really good. Boom. Um, excellent. So, <laughs> um, anyway, back to book discussion. So. The next thing we have here is another pair of stories. Uh, the one is, well, I don't even think we were planning to talk about it, but it's... We absolutely were it's not. It's sort of at the point, based on what we were kind of seeing out there today, that we sort of have to. One of my uh, favorite <laughs> pieces of journalism in the world is uh-huh. when the New Yorker is like, I fucking hate that guy. And then they do this really, like, tongue-in-cheek yeah. takedown yeah, yeah. where it's just pointing out this person's bad actions and lies yeah. for, like... A twenty-minute read yeah. for many thousands That's like of a, words. That reminds me a lot of like what Ronan Farrow does. Like I feel like he's kind of the the guy for that a lot of the time. Um, so we're talking about this thing today that everyone was honestly. I feel like screaming about is a fine way to put the reaction yeah, to shrieking. it today. Yeah, um, and this is an article uh, by Ian Parker is the writer's name called "A Suspense Novelist's Trail of Deceptions," and it is about. Um, the author Dan Mallory, who writes under the name A.J. Finn, um, Dan Mallory slash A.J. Finn is the author of The Woman in the Window, which was a uh, number one New York Times bestseller. It will be a movie that comes um, out in a couple months. But anyway, this article is insane. <laughs> so this guy, it's... Dan Mallory, um, has for many, many years worked in publishing. Yeah. He's, you know, like yeah. executive kind of, you know, making 200 grand plus a year. Yeah, that was nice to see. Yeah, I know. I was like, like, oh, man. <laughs> um, yeah, so he... He's been working in publishing. There was this huge auction for his first book, and then they revealed who he was, and everybody dropped out except for the publisher that he worked at. Okay, so we should, yeah. No, I mean, <laughs> that is crazy that you're Isn't on Isn't that crazy? I didn't even know you could do that, to be I honest. Didn't... I guess, like, I'm thinking now that this is a total aside, and I apologize for the transgression, but, like, publishers buying their own employees' books. Have you seen that much? Um, no. That Dryer guy, there's that, um, he's like a copy editor at Random House. He just oh, sold that book called Dryer's you know what, English. Though? Is he a Random House guy? He, yeah, he's the yeah. copy chief at Random right. House and, and has just, been for many, yeah. but I give him a pass because his book is about grammar and I feel like that's kind of the same as like it's very, the Chicago yeah, sure. University Press doing sure. the Chicago Manual of Style. Sure. I guess, yeah. That's different. Like this is this is a thriller. Yeah, that's true. That sold for a million dollars. I don't think Dryer got a million dollars. No, he probably did not. Um... But knowing publishing, they probably just, like, made him write it under his salary. They just, like, said, oh, yeah, just, like, do this on your off hours. Bummer. (laughs) Um, Anyway, um, the reason that, you know, all these publishers seem to have backed off of this man when they realized it was him writing the books is that he seems to be kind of a a serial liar to a degree that feels almost cartoonish. And it's – he gaslights a lot. There's a lot. But, like, it's things like he would – you know, he like made up having published one of J.K. Rowling's books somewhere in here. He made up having a brain tumor at one point, a lie that he like corroborated and like told his whole office about. He like, sent all of his professional colleagues email, like many, many emails from under his brother's name. It's just like, 
yeah so there's just sort of this and but like what was what's crazy about the story and the reason i think that it's going to tie into what we're going to talk about in a minute is that like along the way all these lies and all this sort of like self myth building sort of added up yeah. to all these this like proliferation of job opportunities <laughs> like he sort of got hired as an editor at little brown for instance based on according to you know anyone here like the cut of his jib you know what i mean not any like <laughs> relevant experience like they just sort of like it just became this thing where he kind of became this larger than life figure nobody it, checked his references yeah, no one ever checked anything and they just kept handing him more and more and higher and higher opportunities to like do basically anything and like come at you know he you know he sounded like he was like pretty truant at a lot of these jobs you know but like because he was just the you know, the fancy writer man, you know, who like I would like created, to be the fancy writer man who like created this like very elaborate and very detailed self mythology, depending on who he was talking to, that like everyone had like a different story of who he was. And it like sort of became like this joke that everyone seemed to really like you could almost tell that people sort of liked that. Yeah. About him in a really weird way. And he was like, making everybody money. And yeah, they're like, well, I don't really know if he's lying. That- <laughs> I think he is. But, yeah. you know, like there's even evidence of one of his authors hiring a private detective to see if he was lying. Like and all of this is to say like the the discourse that is currently happening in this in this article just came out a few hours ago. But the, the discourse around that is. Nobody cares because he's making money, Yeah, which dovetails into um, a piece of news that was a couple of weeks ago is a couple of weeks old and is continuously developing, which is Jay Asher, the YA author of 13 Reasons Why, which is a garbage book. Don't let your kids read that book. It's very bad <laughs> for it your mental health. No, it's really bad for mental health. One, right? yeah, yeah, and like self-harm yeah. and all sorts yeah. of bad stuff. Anyway, yeah. it's a garbage book. Came out like 12, 10 years ago. Right. It's got a Netflix series, also apparently very garbage. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, like... This guy who sold almost 10 million copies of this one book has movie, you know, like whatever. Um, It came out a couple months ago through the Society of Children's Book Writers and Illustrators that like upwards of 40 women had accused him of sexual misconduct. And they just reported on it and they investigated the claims. They ended up like kicking him out of SCBWI, which is he like, lost his agent. Like, yeah. So, so, well, his the, agent dropped him. Right. Like, you know, yeah. it wasn't like a punitive thing. It no, was no, the no, agent no. It was didn't just, want to work with him anymore. But then that's sort of the justification for where Asher is now, which is that he's, he's suing the SCBWI for defamation because it hurt his career and lost like theoretical, like lost financial. Right. And it kind of. And so the point you and I were kind of trying to like weave together on this as the way I see it was just like there's a certain class of person in publishing that because they occupy such a space of like white male the, making money. Yeah, space. like prestige like prestige cachet in a way that everyone, you know, that sort of just produces money. Yeah. That they're often allowed the leeway and put in situations where they can like reinforce that position where they can get more out of it you know and like mm-hmm. we see it in this Mallory story right where like this guy who you know is sort of 
it's it becomes like self-reinforcing logic, right? Like, oh, well, this is just the guy who did this, so we better give him this next opportunity. And then as he lies his way through that, the next person who evaluates him says, well, look at all this other prior stuff he did. And it's like he's able to just kind of continue doubling down all the while he's got this kind of book and people are just willing to kind of broaden the scope through which he's allowed to act. And like with this Asher thing, like, you know, we see like one interesting thing you know, I think in this in this element, and it's something we've talked about on the show before, is like, for instance, the the morality clause in publishers, yep. you know, or like in contracts that basically says a publisher can, you know, they can drop you for whatever reason, you know. And I think we've both kind of come down previously that we don't really like that clause because it offers publishers sort of a backdoor easy way out without really being accountable to their own decisions. Yeah. Like, but, like, what happens, it sort of hangs writers out to dry, right? And it hurts writers by and large. But what happens also is that it creates a situation where the only writers who are able to kind of push back and fight back for their own, you know, rights are the ones with the most money and power. Yeah. You know, because it becomes like, you know, lawsuits are expensive. Like, having the time to, especially once you've theoretically lost your publishing contract, you know, and you maybe you're... You've got to find other work. Like, it's tough to fight back against this stuff if you feel you've been wrongfully. But, like, someone with money, someone who has the cachet that someone like an Asher does, you know, they can push back. They can say, actually, you know, and it's sort of, I mean, it's obviously this is a story and a dynamic that exists in many more places outside of publishing. You know, this idea that, you know, law and, you know, legal repercussion is something that, is only available to rich people, you know, which is largely true in America. I think it's not that uncontroversial to say. Um, but it exists in publishing too, you know, this idea that like all these different things, all these different dynamics we're creating, they're lar- like so many of like the structures and so many of the author the rights for authors and things. Mm-hmm. And even like, or even, you know, per- opportunities for personal advancement. Um, you know, they're only available to a certain type of person. <laughs> and, like, I don't know, the, the the thing that I kept seeing online today, and I thought it was a great point when it came up, was just, like, which kind of person is allowed to self-mythologize their way? You know, who's given that kind of leeway in publishing? It's never – it's always this kind of dude, you know? It's yeah. never someone – like, I think it was I think it was Maris Crisman, who's a very good book critic and an editor. I mean, you know, she said that, you know, basically, and she kind of put it really well – you know, no one has ever liked the cut of her jib, mm. you know, and it's like, yeah, it's a great point. It's, it's that like glass elevator. You, you get these, you know, these talent, you know, a lot and a lot and a lot of talented people are not given the benefit of the doubt, even when they deserve it. Meanwhile, people who are just flat out fabricating their whole life histories and, the, and oftentimes their professional experience are being rewarded for doing that. I want to touch for a moment on like celebrity and success in book publishing as as is different from other places so like both of these cases that we are talking about right now um it's it kind of gets back at the idea that that publishing is a is a meritocracy like even if you disregard if you disregard mallory's you know ridiculous behavior in his regular life like the fact is is that people liked his writing you know same with jay asher you know before all of this came out that book sold 10 million copies and one thing that's really so interesting to me uh versus like 
film stars, for example, is like with with film stars, if somebody is is a bad actor, right? Like, mm-hmm. and and I don't mean they're bad at acting. I mean if they're yeah. they're behaving poorly, right? right. Um, a lot of the time, if if the public turns on them, it it becomes kind of a them and PR versus the public. There's not kind of this this assigned blame on individuals. There's this idea that like you are the star, and if you fuck it up, like you know sometimes you can come back, particularly if you're a white man. Mm-hmm. But that's kind of that's that's part of it, right? Your star has fallen. With publishing, with these, like because the because the author is so celebrated yet so hidden, mm-hmm. um, there is often this idea, and there is also you know everybody knows that Hollywood is unfair. Everybody knows that it's not even yeah. at all. Yeah, publishing is still seen as a merit- meritocracy, and even more than that, there's this idea that if you have celebrity. Not just like financial success, not just getting published, but like if you are Jay Asher, if you are Dan Mallory, you deserve it. You've earned it. And thus, if somebody then says that you as a person have done bad things or you as a person are bad, Mm -hmm. that is a direct affront to your qualitative contributions. Yeah. And it's a direct affront affront to, you know, it's that you are already a celebrity, so nobody can say anything bad about you. Yeah. Right? And it's kind of this, like, weird, warped way of thinking that because I'm a celebrity, I deserve it. And it's not that the, the court of public opinion or that the tides have changed. It's that this is the way that it is and you're disrupting it. Mm-hmm. Um, which is which is so so weird to me. It is so weird to me, and and of course, like there's there are examples in every industry of this sort of thing happening. Um, but everywhere else, everywhere else, you know, the public is just the public is just the public. Yeah. And here, you know, it's SCBWI's fault. Yeah. Here, it is you know the women that came forward, and it's. And it it's it's frustrating. <laughs> we're a lot worse. I think we're a lot yeah. worse at like diagnosing like situations and right. assigning blame as straightforwardly as we're able to in an industry like film. Is that right. kind of your basically your point? Well, yeah, because you know, in publishing, you don't have the person's face on screen. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. Like what you have is the conversation. Well, you know. Um, Franzen's an, is an asshole, but I like his work. Yeah, you know yeah. this writer was abusive, and he threw this person out of a car. But I'm still gonna read Infinite Jest. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so there's there's this idea in publishing specifically that your genius erases everything else. Yeah. And I want to see like the structures of publishing, not just SCBWI or writer led initiatives. Like I want to see structurally what happens if we in publishing deal with that Mm. like i give so much props to that agent for being like you know what we're done like you're making me tons and tons and tons of money and to be fair um they will they are still making tons and tons and tons of money because (laughs) like if you sold the book like you get that money from that book forever um you always get that money but it's 
you know, it, it says a lot that yeah. somebody that that he, somebody dropped him. Yeah, I agree. All right. Well, just, you know, cheery, cheery stuff. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we were cheery for a whole bunch of this episode. We I were feel. when we talked about it being yeah, negative 55. Yeah. And like the, you know, remember how much fun we were having crashing our cars? That was good. Yeah, that was fun. Yeah. Um, I'm going to end this episode Please. with a Tulune It May Concern. All right, I'm ready. To loon, it may concern. My publisher is ghosting me. They literally disconnected emails and pulled the plug on the server. I have sent the letter asking for my rights back, but my books are still for sale on Amazon. It's like they are zombies, mindlessly making money for a publisher no longer returning my calls. I haven't been paid in many months despite the terms of the contract, and now all the staff have quit. What now? How do I know when I can put my books out there again if they never respond? How do I handle my author PR since it seems like telling people not to buy my books is a bad idea? Moving forward, how do I address the now sorted publishing history in the bio section of my query letter? I know my publisher is going under and ghosting me is more a reflection on them, but I can't help but feel like this somehow taints me and my career. Help me, Print Run Podcast. You're my only hope. <laughs> Caught in a crappy plot twist. Um... Okay, so I guess, like, the place to start here is with this assertion or this feeling that this author has at the bottom that, you know, they feel like this somehow taints this person in their career. Yep. And I personally, and I I mean, and I say this meaningfully and, like, hopefully with substance, that I don't think that it does. I would agree with that. You know what I mean? Like, I think that this is a... At least as you describe it here, as like a straightforwardly, and we're going to talk about what to do about it in a second, but a as straightforwardly a situation where you've been mistreated yeah. by the industry and a specific publisher, that that case seems very, um, you know, like it, this feels very cut and dry to me on like a, on like an author morality level. You yeah. know what I'm talking about? Yeah. And like so, in terms of like how you would discuss it with others, like. I guess, like, you would simply just say, you know, I had this book here and the pre- and the press went under. Now, the rest of this stuff, I feel like, is the sort of thing that you deal with without discussing, not because it is reflects poorly on you, but, like, some of these other things I couldn't ever really see coming up unless you, like, signed with a new agent or something mm-hmm. and it suddenly became their responsibility. And that, I guess, would be, like, one, you know, question here is, like, you know, is there an agent, you know, involved that can help you? And I'm assuming that there is not because you're the one sending the letters asking for rights and stuff. And so, like, I don't know. I guess I've, like, on a moral level, I view this as pretty pretty straightforward. And I don't actually think, as, as personally, um, as personally, like, disruptive and I'm sure disappointing and full of bad feeling as this whole process has been for you, I don't think this reflects poorly on you yeah. in any way. I think this is a situation. Like, I get why you'd be uncomfortable talking about it, but I don't think that this is one of those things that, like, a di- an agent or another publisher is going to look at and say, oh, man, like, we don't want to work with this. Per-. Like, I, in fact, you know, almost, I mean, I wouldn't, I was going to say almost the opposite. And I guess it's just sort of a neutral thing. You know, like, yeah. I don't think that people. So I guess, Laura, two questions. Do mm-hmm. you agree with that? And, what would you do about this? I do agree with that. Um, in terms of how you would deal with this in a query letter, I would say, you know, we, when you're pitching a book that's not this book, yeah. right? You would say, um, you know, blah, blah, blah. Here's your bio. I had previously published two, one or two novels 
with this press. Um, this would be, you know, my first work, you know, with yeah. an agent, whatever. Yeah. Like, that's enough. Like, if somebody wants to ask about the drama and, like, agents know. Like, agents know that this stuff gets messy. Um, in terms of what do you do about this with the book being for sale and not being paid, I have good news and bad news. Mm-hmm. Um, bad news is you're never going to get that money. Like, you're never going to get proper accounting. Like, if this publisher is going under, they have probably been operating way longer than they have the money to, and you're just not going to see it. Like, it's just, it's something that is never going to happen. Yeah. Um. So what I would focus on then is having, instead getting control over the, the rights so get you can back. republish it and, and, and do it right. Okay. Um, and you have to self-publish it this time around. And so I think um, like if letters and and they you can't email them um, and you don't have an agent, the next step is Lawyer. going to the Authors Guild. Yep. That's a good um, one. Yeah. Like they have resources. And like if none of you are members, listeners, join up. Authors Guild's really good. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you should go and they have resources specifically specifically for stuff like this. Like legal resources and they have discounts for like a like a you know, a lawyer. Like sometimes it's just enough to get an actual lawyer to send um an official letter. So that was gonna be my yeah. thing because like in your contract somewhere and in most book contracts, especially like there's some clause somewhere that has procedure for asking for the rights back, yeah. right? And what you need to do, I think, and I'm sh- and I, I'm probably telling you something that you've already done, but just because other people may find themselves in this situation, like, you know, you'd send, you would put the letter on, you know, some sort of official letterhead, and basically just say like, this is the official request, you know, dated as of this date, sent yeah. to you on this date. You have 30, you, 60, you or have, 90 days. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. Have this this serves as notice at the end of whether, you know, at the end of this time, whether we hear from you or not, we get the rights. And this has been, you know, this, we're prepared to lean on this document should it ever come up. Yep. You know, and I would just say like. Now if, it's time to lean. Now it's time to, yeah. I mean, so get that sent out if you haven't. And if you can get a lawyer involved, you know, especially one through. Yeah you know, the author's guild, like getting them to, you know, like I know you you say, you know, you're never seeing that money and stuff. And that's probably true. But like even just saying like that needs I it feels like even that they owe you a written response that says that like they do. And a lawyer could theoretically compel that and just be like, you know, we need <laughs> like they need to tell we you that they don't data. have the money. Need, yeah. yeah. Like there's some sort of. um so basically, like, step one, I think, is just getting them on an official legal timer that mm-hmm. you can then lean on whether they respond or not, you know? And the reason that I said go to the AG mm-hmm. um, is because they probably are working with other authors who are having this similar issue, um, and they have experience with this. And so, like, you, you know, a lawyer is expensive, right, if they're, if they're charging you hourly. And again, those reduce rates and that institutional support for people who do focus on stuff like this is a good first step. If they end up not being perfectly right for you, um, you know, there there are other avenues that you can go on. But in terms of like unagented authors who need help with rights and things, they're great. I mean, I know our agency has used AG as, as backup yeah. for various complicated situations that come to us 
but you know with authors that we've just signed you know like well and also just like speaking broadly luckily for you this is not the first time a publisher has gone under <laughs> yeah like this is unfortunately a thing that like happens sometimes and so like an organization like the authors guild probably like someone there has done this before you know what yeah. i mean like this is not a totally and they're the ones who I think have, the, like you said, who have the apparatus to help you with it. But in terms of like future looking, you know, publishing prospects and stuff, I would just say that I think you're probably better off than you think. I mean, you managed to, um, you know, it still, I think, looks good that you published a book. Like you've kind of been through this process before. You're going to come off as an experienced author. If you handle it, actually, that's actually even one more benefit of going through the Authors Guild is because you'll then be able to kind of present yourself as having handled this in a very mature and professional yeah. way through an apparatus that whatever your next publisher is going to understand, you know? And so I think that you're going to come out looking okay here. The question simply is, you know, just taking the necessary steps to cover your bases to get the rights and stuff back to your work, you know? Yeah, absolutely. All right. So good luck. Um, we're, we're pulling for you caught yeah. in a crappy plot twist. Um, we, we wish you the best. And for all of those that are listening who are not the person who sent in this letter, <laughs> um, thank you so much for joining us on this episode of Print Run. We will be having our special January episodes coming through Patreon in February, the same as the February episodes. Thank you, Polar Vortex. Mm-hmm. Um, and we will see you all for another regular episode next week. Bye. Bye.